audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, the moment of truth, the moment of truth is usually followed by victory or defeat. Um, Oklahoma State fans, it's followed by victory sometimes, right? OU fans, it's followed by defeat sometimes, okay? All right, the moment of truth. Now, the moment of truth can come in a lot of different environments. It can come, uh, it can come on a ball field, yes, very true, but it can also come in an operating room at a hospital, all right? Um, there are so many different places where these moments of truth can arise, and they are almost always followed by victory or defeat. And it does not matter which one that follows it. You're left with this question oftentimes as, as the heart rate begins to slow down, okay? And you begin, the, you know, the shock or the adrenaline begins to fade a little bit and you say, what just happened there? <laughs> what just happened? One of the titles that Jesus came into this world to fulfill, we've talked about Messiah, the Christ, but there was another title that he was labeled, and appropriately so, and it was this one. Son of man? Yeah. Son of God? Yeah. What about son of David? Son of David. And when I say son of David, I'm talking about that most famous David of Old Testament and Hebrew Jewish history, King David. The, the life of King David could easily be described, depending on where and when it was taking place, as the best of times and the worst of times. You see, King David was anointed as the king of the future king of Israel when he was just a boy, just a shepherd boy. And it would be many years and a lot of things would happen before he would ascend to that throne of king of Israel. There would be many years between his anointment as king. Remember that word, anointment, okay? We're going to come back to that here in a little bit. Between being anointed as king and between him and actually becoming king. And in the meantime, a lot of things happened. One thing, he was hunted by the current king, King Saul. He was hunted by him. King Saul, who is also his father-in-law. I mean, that, that gets a little crazy here, all right? Um, not only that, long after he would become king, he would be kicked out of his palace and his own capital city, which was named Jerusalem, the city of David. He would be kicked out of this by his own son, a guy by the name of Absalom. I mean, I would say that's probably some of the worst of times. The best of times and the worst of times. Throughout it all, King David was given a title of his own. And the title was this. He was a man after God's own heart. Does that mean he was righteous like God? <laughs> no, King David wouldn't be made righteous until Jesus did his job because the blood of Jesus reached backwards just like it reaches forwards. Okay? No, he was, not, he was not a perfect man by any means. He made a lot of mistakes, some of them grievous mistakes and sins. But he was labeled a man after God's own heart because his heart always remained soft. It never hardened. And when, he, when his sin was called out, he would repent. Understand something about repentance. We'll come full circle to this also before we're done. Repentance is not just feeling bad. Repentance is 
doing something about the sin that we have committed. A repentance is a desire to change. A desire to change. So, you've got this David who was a man after God's own heart. He was told not only that he would be king, but he was also told that his line, his descendants, through them, there would be a, another king. And his kingship, his kingdom, would last forever. Now, I'm going to, you don't have to turn here. I cheated. I have it marked in my Bible, all right? Um, but I'm going to read for you out of Second Samuel chapter 7. And these are the words of the Lord to David. And this is what it says. I'm going to read a couple of verses here, beginning with verse 12. The Lord speaking to David, saying this, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so this is what's going on at this point in David's life. He wants to build a temple to God. He's like, we're in the capital city now. I have my home. I want to build a temple for God. And God said, sorry, David, you can't do it. You're a bloody man. What he means by this, you got blood on your hands. You're a warrior. You can't build my, you can't build my house, right? Your son will build my house. And, and we know, our hindsight's twenty twenty. okay? We know that son was King Solomon. And it says, this descendant of yours will build my house. But then after that, it says... I will establish his throne and it will last forever. Let me tell you about something about Solomon. He died. He was buried and his bones turned to dust, all right? His throne didn't last forever. Matter of fact, his throne of his people didn't even last forever. So who, who was the Lord talking about here? The Lord was talking about the man who was coming, who would wear the name, the son of David, Jesus the Christ. Now, Jesus, this isn't, this isn't, sometimes we attach it to Christmas, but it isn't really part of the Christmas story when those guys came from a long ways away to come to worship. They came to worship. Um, Jesus was probably around the age of two, maybe a little bit younger. And they came to worship, but they came to worship somebody specifically, the one who was born king of the, remember? King of the Jews. We saw a star in the east, and we have come to worship him. You see, Jesus, the son of David, was that prophesied king. The one that was to come, and his kingdom would last forever. You know what I did here, folks? Eddie, did you get a hold of my notes today? Are you sure? You wore your monkey shirt. You always feel honorary on your monkey shirt days. Okay, it's me on your monkey shirt. I see. All right. I was like, we I already told you we're going to go quick through the sermon. We can't start in the second point already. We'd be out of here in five minutes. You guys wouldn't know what to do. All right. The son of David. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in Jesus' life. This is 32 years, give or take a few months, removed from his life, his birth. And what we have here is Jesus for the last six months, having been in the area around Jerusalem, preaching the message of the kingdom, healing people, raising people to life who are dead. We'll talk a little bit about that one. 
Six months, right? Not in Jerusalem, but close to Jerusalem in Judea. Now, this is different because most of Jesus' ministry kind of took place off to the north in what we would call the boondocks, all right? In, in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, that's where he spent most of his time. But the last six months prior to what we're going to look at today, he was around Judea. And his popularity, folks, was like up here. I mean, we're talking record levels here of popularity. I mean, there are people coming to him from all over the place. And with his meteoric rise in popularity also came a rise in the efforts of his opposition. What we read in Luke chapter 19 is an event that takes place that is, that is recorded by every gospel writer. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? There has only been one event in Jesus' life up to this point that was recorded by all four of them. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It was the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about that. How all, when, when all four gospel writers write about an event, it's usually a pretty important event. And we remember that it wasn't just feeding 5,000. He fed 5,000 men and their families. So a conservative estimate would be Jesus fed 20,000 from five loaves and two fish. So, this next event we're going to look at, what happens the day before this event is Jesus is anointed. Remember, I told you, remember that anoint, anointed, anointment word. And he's anointed by a gal named Mary. Now, don't get confused of which Mary this is. There's several Marys in Scripture. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. And Mary takes an, a, a, a bottle of perfume, okay? Now, now, this perfume would cost a year's worth of wages. So just add that up in your mind for a second. Uh, husbands, anybody going to get a gift for that for your wife this year? Some perfume that a year's worth of wages? <laughs> That'd be a present. I don't know if she would like it or not. Don't tell her how much it costs if you do that, please. All right. She takes this jar of perfume she breaks it open and she anoints Jesus with it Judas sees this and he's not too happy about it he's like my goodness that's a lot of money she could have sold that it could have been put in the treasury and think how many poor people we could have helped with that now Judas really wanted it because he wanted the money for himself but Jesus said leave her alone what she has done here will never be forgotten and then he says this, she has by doing this anointed me for my kingship. Is that what she said? She's anointed me for my burial. I had a sermon that I preached a number of years ago, many moons ago. And the title of the sermon was a quote by Bailey Hershey. And I don't even know if she was Bailey Hershey at that point. I'm not sure. But I think she was. I think she was. And, and she, she used to, maybe you've heard her say this before. Wait, what? You ever heard Bailey say that before? Wait, what? All right. I, th I think that's what some of the apostles are thinking right here. Wait, 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 what? What did you just say, Jesus? She anointed you for, for what? For your burial. Jesus, that's the wrong anointment. <laughs> yes, Jesus was a king, but a different sort of king. All right, look at verse 29. 
of Luke 19. I told you we were going to get there. Now we are there, okay? And what we're going to see here is we're going to see a king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. So let's read about it. Luke 19, 29. When he, Jesus, approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. All right, the Mount of Olives. This is a pretty significant historical spot when it comes to Jesus and his life. This is, we probably wouldn't call it a mountain. It's set about 2,600 feet above sea level, all right? Now, Jerusalem sets up a little bit above sea level, so this doesn't look like a mountain above Jerusalem. We would probably call it more of a hill, okay? So Jesus, as he's approaching the top of this hill, this is what he could see. Right at the base of this hill on the, on the border of Jerusalem, you have the temple, okay? You have the temple there, right above there, and from this vantage point, Jesus could see the whole of the city of Jerusalem, right? There is a lot that's going to take place on this Mount Olives, Mount of Olives in the coming weeks, Okay? So they get up there, they're, they're about to come down to Jerusalem, and Jesus sends two of his disciples, probably Peter and John, to go get not just a donkey, to get a colt, a foal of the donkey. As I told you, this event is recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when you put all of them together, you get a bigger picture. They not only got the donkey colt, they brought its mama too, okay? Because this is... This colt's never been broken to be ridden before, all right? So you got to bring mom to keep it calm, okay? So they bring this, this, this kind of this donkey and this donkey's colt to Jesus. The owners willingly let them do this. Remember, Jesus has been in this area for six months now. They know of him. They've heard of him. They might even be fans of his. So they let him take the colt. Here is my question. Where's the war horse? All right? We're talking about the king here. Okay. All right. Now, this is where my mind goes because I was born in the 20th century. All right? Not the 19th century, Mike. I was born in the 20th century. All right? And, and what you have taken place here, my mind, when I think of generals, I think of General MacArthur. That's where my mind goes. General MacArthur is right in the middle of World War II and even beyond that, the Korean War. I mean, he was around for a while. Okay? And, and this guy was in the middle of all of that. Now, imagine putting yourself in the place that you remember this. The war is over. War, the allies have won, all right? And the pomp and the circumstance. And imagine yourself in Washington, D.C. itself, and there is this great grand military parade, and you've got General MacArthur right up near the front, and he's riding in a power wheels. I mean, this isn't quite what I pictured, all right? Where, when it comes to Jesus is the war horse. We're not even talking about a donkey. We're talking about a baby donkey that he's riding. 
Matthew with the benefit of hindsight 2020 as well as the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, one of our gospel writers, who happened to be the gospel writer that the most put in his writing how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He said this was to fulfill prophecy. More specifically, the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah from the Old Testament. And this is what is stated in Matthew 21. Behold, your king is coming to you gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You see, Jesus was a different type of king. And he rode a different type of steed, (laughs) a donkey colt. But let me tell you something. It did not hurt the pomp and circumstance of the moment at all. So we got a king on a donkey. The next thing is this, the people. Where are we going to march? Let me tell you something, folks. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphant or the triumphal entry. And the people are stoked, all right? They are fired up. Look at verse 36 of Luke 19. Here's what it says. As he, Jesus, as he was going... They were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Guys, this is the second time the people are ready to take Jesus and make him king by force. You remember the first time? Talked about it a couple weeks ago. That other event that's recorded by all the gospel writers, that feeding of the 5,000. Remember, he fed probably ballpark 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And the people are like, that's the kind of kingdom I want to be in. We ain't ever going to be hungry. You feed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We're never going to be hungry. So they want to take him and make him king by force. And this is a, just blows my mind. When you put all the pictures together from all the gospel writers, this is what Jesus does. He dismissed the crowd. First, he sent his disciples away. And then by himself, he dismissed 20,000 people. That's crazy. Without a PA system. He said, okay, go on home now. Go on home. And he went up on the mountain to pray and be by himself. You see, the people wanted to take and make him king, but they're in the boondocks. They're up by the Sea of Galilee in the middle of nowhere. So it's a little easier for Jesus to say, okay, go home now, all right? We'll take care of this king thing later. Just go home. Now, this is different. The people are crying out to Jesus, their king. And they're on the doorstep of Jerusalem and the doorstep of the temple. If you're going to take a king and make him by force, This is where you do it. This is the pilgrim entrance. Where Jesus is at is the pilgrim entrance of Jerusalem. What I mean by that is when people celebrated the Passover, there were a good number of people who did not have the finances to do this every year. As a matter of fact, they might be poor enough that this is a one-time event in the life of their family. And they would save their money for it so they could go and celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, in the city of David. So you've got people from the boondocks, you've got people from regions a long ways away, and this is how they enter the city. They know about Jesus. Jesus spent the majority of his ministry in their backyard, 
They know this Jesus guy. And they're crying out, to saying, they are so excited here. The Roman authorities are a little bit nervous about all of this. They are in the tower there on the edge of the temple, the Tower of Ant- uh, Antonia. And they see what's taking place here. They hear what's taking place. The people are taking their coats and putting it on the ground for the donkey to ride across. Would you do that? I'm guessing if you're there, you just might. Those who didn't do that, they wouldn't cut branches off palm trees and laid them on the ground. Both of these two, these two things that they did are significant because they are political. This is, this is the political gestures of saying this, the king has arrived. He's here. Remember what Jesus has just done a couple weeks before this. There's a man who's been in his own tomb for four days. His name was Lazarus, and Jesus raised him back to life. So if you've got a king that can feed his nation with next to nothing, and who can raise the dead, who's going to withstand that king and that kingdom? The people are at at a fever pitch here, and Jesus comes down into Jerusalem. The crowd and the noise grows. Matthew and Mark record in the praises that are given by the people, they talk about David. The son of David, glory in the highest for the son of David, the king is here. There is no king in Israel's history more famous than David. None. He's the one. And they say the son of David is here. I know what the people are thinking. Let's take Jerusalem right now and then let Rome come. Let them come because we got our king. The Pharisees watching all of this as well, they're fit to be tied, okay? Let's just understand this. They see what's taking place here. Now, don't get me wrong. The Pharisees, they don't like the authority of Rome. They don't. But you know what they like even less than that? You know what they hate? the authority of Jesus because Jesus challenged their power and they are not happy about this and you know what they're thinking you got the king riding on a donkey you got the people saying where are we marching to we're going to Jerusalem and then you got the Pharisees saying what are we going to do about this what are we going to do so let's take a look at it verse 39 some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. You got to understand something. The Pharisees are watching this. If Jesus does not rebuke these people saying these things, he is committing blatant blasphemy in their minds. Because the people are crying out, they are deifying Jesus. He is God. Just to let you know the significance of this, you see a similar scene taking place in Acts chapter 14. The speakers were different. The two speaking were Paul and Barnabas. And they're speaking to Gentiles in a language that they don't understand very well. And the people began praising Paul and Barnabas in their own language, calling one Hermes and the other Zeus. 
And they're about to offer sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas catch on. They rip their clothing and cry out, No, stop, we're just men. We're not gods. We're not God. Because it would be blasphemy to accept the praise for God as a man. And the Pharisees see this and they say to Jesus, Tell your people to be quiet. This is blasphemy. And what does Jesus say in response? Hey, it's time for me to be praised. I'm going to be praised. If I tell them to shut up, the rocks will cry out. That's a song from my youth back in the camp days. Ain't no rock going to cry in my place. As long as I'm alive, I'll glorify God's holy name. Oh, I love that song. That's the old days right there. All right. A little bit of retro. Ain't no rock going to cry in my place. Jesus says this to the Pharisees, and I can't imagine what their response is. Jesus says, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones around you will cry out in praise for me. I'm the king of it all. For months now, the Pharisees had sought Jesus out. For months now, years, they had tried to trap him. And he always eluded them every single time. But guess what? He's not hiding anymore. He's coming to Jerusalem, and there's going to be a showdown. And the Pharisees are saying to themselves and to each other, what are we going to do about this? That day, they could do nothing but watch. They did not have the power. Matter of fact, in John chapter 12, in his account of this event, you know what he records that the Pharisees say to one another? They say this, what are we going to do? The whole world has gone after him. That's how the week began, brothers and sisters. The triumphal entry. We all know how the week ends, don't we? Jesus is following in the footsteps of his earthly patriarch, David. You see, David would be anointed as king while he was still a shepherd boy. It would be many years later before he would ascend to the throne. Jesus was anointed as king. He was anointed as a burial. And there's something that had to take place before he would ascend to his throne. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna in the highest, the son of David, glory to God in the highest. But Jesus was not to be crowned as king yet. And by the end of the week, there were different shouts. It was no longer glory in the highest. It was no longer praise the son of David. It was this, crucify him. Crucify him. And by the end of the week, Jesus would be wearing a different sort of crown. Not a crown of gold with diadems on it, with gems and... and No, it would be a crown of thorns that would pierce his scalp. And blood would run down into his face and eyes. That's the crown he was destined for that week. 
We call it Good Friday, don't we? Good Friday. You got Good Friday off this year? Yeah, got Good Friday off. It's a good day. You know what Good Friday was? It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. I've heard it put this way, that it was good for us, bad for Jesus. But that might be a little bit too simplified. I can understand the sentiment behind that, but to be honest with you, if you take that phrase and you reverse it, it explains Jesus quite well. It was the worst of times, but it was the best of times. You see, the words would come for Jesus, and he would say these words while hanging on a cross. It is finished. It's done. And he would close his eyes and yield up his spirit. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, at that moment, it was the best of times for Jesus Christ because his job was done. As crazy as it sounds, Jesus had to earn the right to wear the crown. Jesus willingly laid aside his glory so that he could earn the right to take it back up again and wear the title, not just King of the Jews, but King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, listen closely. There will be another entrance into this world, another triumphal entry, okay? And let me tell you something, he's not going to be riding the colt of a donkey next time around. You don't have to turn there, but you could if you'd like to. Revelation 19. I'm going to read it for you. It won't even be on the screen behind me. Revelation. This vision was given to the Apostle John very late in his life. And boy, I tell you what, there's a lot of revelation that's very confusing to me. <laughs> But man alive, you get into 19, 20, and 21. I'm not going to say some of it isn't confusing, okay? But wow, the picture it paints of what's coming. Let me read a little bit of it for you from Revelation 19. This is John writing what he saw. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Do you see a donkey there? No. No. A white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. There's that crown. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called 
the word of God. And the armies which in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No, when he comes back, brothers and sisters, it will not be a meek, gentle Savior on the colt of a donkey. He'll be in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all his power, in all his righteousness, ready to wield justice upon a world That needs justice. And brothers and sisters, thank God that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are ready for that day.